This is Bruce. This is John. This is Jay. This is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Thank you for joining us this week and every week as we explore the strange and unusual worlds of the TriTac Games, which are a fringeworthy FTL 2448 Incursion, Bureau 13, and the Stellar Game Systems, which also includes Expendables. And the newest release TriTag Games, Hardwired Hinterland, and Weird Zone. The Big Bad. Big Bad. (laughs) Trap, what do you think of when you think of the Big Bad? I think of the main villain. The main reason that your characters are fighting the good fight in whatever TriTag game you're playing. Uh, He has legions of mooks, goons, minions, whatever you want to call them, and several levels of lieutenants in a hierarchy that ultimately answer to him. And this guy is the pinnacle of power. Now, he could have internal power like an an FX, or he could just have power due to prestige and money that he pours toward whatever his main goal is, world domination, uh, destruction, whatever. Right. Everyone needs a hobby. Right. So he yeah. wouldn't be a really, really, really powerful person, dude, creature that shows up for one adventure and is gone. No, no, no. no. You would have him there. He's the, well, not necessarily the power behind the throne, but he is the driving force of all these other villains that answer to him. And yeah. I, I see it like in a video game. Do you hit the big bad when you get that video game? No, no, no. You're fighting all the the goons, like in Mario Brothers. You're fighting the little mushrooms and everything. You don't hit Bowser until later on. Well, the reason I bring it up is because some people would say, well, the big bad. You mean like Galactus? And I would say, no, not Galactus. Being the merciless, maybe. Yeah, because he's, like you say, he's somebody you work up to. Galactus just kind of shows up and eats your planet and it's over. That's it. With Ming, though, you can actually run into Ming very first episode, but never see him again for oh, for like ten sessions after that. Well, see, there, there's a good thing there. You could have a big bad. There's two ways to introduce a big bad from what I see. One, like John just said, you let your players know he's there. This guy is a visible, viable threat. But there's no way you can touch him because you are still low-level characters. But you yep. know that he's there. Then there's the other way where... Okay, you find these these goons, thugs, minions, mooks, whatever, and you find out, okay, you're looking at these guys and you just wipe the floors with, and you're going, okay, these guys are obviously not masterminds. There has to be a higher force. And thus you begin to climb up the hierarchy. Mr. X. Yes. Who's there? Yeah, who's been buying these guys all these toys? Yeah, right. It's like these geeks are yeah, coming... But- these mooks are coming a dime a dozen. Who's supplying the dimes? Would you guys say that it actually depends on the campaign that you're running? Like, for example, mm-hmm. you could have a big bad in a in a one shot. So he really is just a big bad. Let's say the Hobbit was an adventure. 
Smog could be the big bad. He doesn't have any minions. He doesn't. He's not going to reappear later on. But for that one adventure, he's the big bad. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't think we would use him as the big bad in that sense. He would be a, a bad guy, but unless you centered your campaign around getting to him or building up to him. Did sort of build up to him. He was always in the background. Yes, yeah, right. Smog. He's the one that took over and did all this stuff and killed all this stuff. He was always like sort of ever-present in the story. Yes, John, but that means he's not a one-shot, which is what Blix just said. Let's not get sidetracked from my question. I'm just saying that let's say your characters aren't currently in a long arc. They're just in a short arc that has nothing to do with any other arc. Would you say that, that it's possible to have a big bad? I, mean, I would say that, that this depends on your context. The way the way Bruce sees to does be it have using to be phrase, for a big campaign or could it be for like one shots? That's that's what I'm that, that's what I'm saying. The way Bruce is using it, a big bad is somebody who has large machinations and great power over time. And Large so if, campaign arcs. Yes. What you're talking about is is a powerful bad guy who is driving the conflict who the characters then go and meet and fight and hopefully defeat. That is the antagonist of the story. He's the guy that they are there to oppose. There can be an antagonist and then there's a big bad. The whole idea of the big bad is that they reoccur over time and build up to a climax. IMAX over time. It's kind of a subjective thing here. I run uh, some public ventures, so there is a mastermind in the, these public ventures. I usually do them as a one-night or two-night adventure. There's a big bad. He's in charge. He's bad. You have to stop him from from succeeding in his in his goals. From They're doing pulp. something really ugly, huh? Yeah. That's why I'm saying that the term is kind of vague here. Are we talking about a reoccurring antagonist for an arc, or are we talking any big villain that you have to go and face who lies at the center of the current plot, whether it's a short shot or a uh, arc? Big bad would be just whoever's causing you the most trouble. Yeah. And it could be the one shot, one big villain, or it could be the big villain that pops in every so often, but you have to fight through his hierarchy of thugs. I think either could apply, just depending on the context of the game that you're running at the time. The game that I ran back at Conclave this past October. Now, the backstory was, they had fought through the thugs. And all of these various heroes got together and realized that the big bads were joining together. Well, the four big bads were actually a master miller assuming the four various pulp supervillains. So all of a sudden, here's these heroes, and they find out their four nemeses were actually one being. So it was a shock to all the players. So, yeah, but in, in the backstory of these, these pre-generated NPCs, or pre-generated characters I did, they had already fought through all the thugs and the minions and the lieutenants and got to the point that started the game that I was running. Okay. Yeah. The big bad was actually several. So <laughs> so you can't have one shot, but you have to give the players this idea that the story has mm -hmm. started before this session and that yes. information has been revealed and they have been working to this point. So now yeah. they're facing the big bad. He's not just like the guy who just jumps out you uh, in an alley and he's the big bad. No. Okay, so uh, you're saying that, that ideally there, could, there should be an arc even if the players are are playing at the very end of the arc, kind of starting in media res, right. starting in the middle of the you gotta, story. you got to give them some feeling that they've been through 
the hierarchy. If you're going to introduce okay. the big as a part of a one shot, it would mm -hmm. be good to give them what's the word I'm looking for yes. here? Emotional breathing. investment on wanting to whoop this guy. Breathe, that, breathing yeah. heavily, you fight through the last of the mooks and kick open the big door, and you find he's got a trap door. He's down in the labyrinth, and you're going to have to dig him out. You've got to give your players some emotional satisfaction that you whoop this guy. That kind of speaks to a failure mode I had, and I was discussing this in our pre-recording discussion. I had a villain who went through a plan to wreak havoc and coerce and extort everybody. You know, your basic Saturday afternoon for a master villain. Yes. And he escaped and fled. And the characters were not able to bring him to justice. And that frustrated them. And that's well, because in the role-playing game, in many ways, a fantasy about power. People play characters who can do things, who could be competent and strongly affect their world for, for good or ill. And that's part of the fun of the game, is these people are heroes, these people are bigger than life, they can do things that we here in the real world just can't do. And so when you are in a position of working with a player character, you have the player character exercise his, his powers, his, his natural powers, and then you say... Yeah, well, your power didn't work. Your, your ability to affect the world was not strong enough and you did not get the result you desire. You neutered the character. You undercut the point of the game and that can antagonize players badly. And I have done that so much. Oh, boy. So it took me a while to learn that lesson and I'm kind of I'm thick-headed. So I had to learn that the villain needs to be powerful so that the players feel a sense of accomplishment for whooping him. But at the same yeah. time, he needs not to be so powerful, or you need not to be, you as the GM, need not to be so attached to him that he becomes immune to the consequences that he's encouraging the PCs to visit upon him. I want to come back and revisit this, but real quick before we move on, just one last thing to, to mention on this. When you're making your big bad up, uh, I guess it's safe to say that that you really, really want to spend some time developing his history, even if it only kind of comes out. It'll at least give you uh, the ability to to play him with this, the the richness and the deftness that he deserves to make them feel as though he's a big overarching character, even if they only encounter him one time. Not only that, but if you know if they want to do research on this guy, like for example, that you know they find out that such and such is at some warehouse or something, and and one of the characters decides that they want to figure out you know who this guy is and stuff, you'll know some things about it, so it won't seem like this just invisible nobody that you know that yeah. it just won't have as much Here. impact. I think that that's that's a really good point about game prep and actual role playing is your villain isn't a villain in his own eyes. He's a person trying to do something to suit some goal or need he has himself. That does depend on the, on the genre. For talking pulp, yeah, you can have Ming the Merciless. He's evil. He knows he's evil, and he relishes in that role. Ming still has a goal. He wishes to conquer. He wishes to gain as much land and power as possible. And he's doing it either for personal satisfaction or he might be doing it to appease his daughter. Uh, what is her? And I just saw this. Allura. Yes. Allura. I'm a big Flash Gordon fan. I was reading it. There's a graphic novel came out recently. I had a bunch of short stories that were really cool. And it basically portrayed the whole uh, as a collection of, of areas that were constantly warring with each other. 
And the reason why Ming is the way he is is because he wanted to stop all the warring and all the bickering and stuff like that. So he took control. And it's sort of like analogous to Anakin Skywalker's rise to power. In his mind, he was doing the right thing. He was doing something good. He was bringing peace and order to the galaxy. But in order to bring peace and order, you know, you can't have descending views in any direction. So you need to squash them. So in one aspect, looking at it from his perspective, he's a good guy. You know, he's making everybody else's life happy. But from another aspect, um, you're happy so long as you agree with him. Yeah, that's a really uh, nuanced character arc there. You know, and, and in the original pulps, they didn't really think like that. They had villains who stood around and were villains because they, they just wanted to be. And I was talking again in the, about this uh, about this experience. I had GMing a villain in a superhero role-playing game whose motives turned out to be a little bit, you know, sideways from what you might consider. But each villain comes at things with a, with a motive and a goal. Usually the problem is... The conflict comes about because he wants what he wants bad enough to hurt other people to get it. He's going to run roughshod over whoever stands in his way because he feels like either he's justified or he just doesn't care about other people or he thinks that it's for the uh, greater good in the long run or something. But he feels that his goals and his desires outweigh your right to hang out and not be threatened by legions of terror. Machiavelli. Yeah. Uh, yes. A lot of times people react and they do things for emotional reasons. They may be really, really smart people, but they're trying to address some emotional element that's going on inside themselves. And so you may see a villain who does things that don't make sense when viewed objectively, but make sense when viewed from his emotional space. And whatever need it is, he's he's trying to fill. What you're saying is a perfect example. You look at Watchmen. Look at the big bad in Watchmen. It was Ozymandias, right? And he's yeah. one of the heroes. Spoiler alert: Ozymandias. You know, he, <laughs> yeah, spoiler. Well, and he, well, yeah, he. If you haven't, if you haven't seen it by now, come on. <laughs> if you <laughs> hadn't read the Seriously. book, yeah, and, <laughs> or read the book, whatever. He believes that he has to try to save the world from self destruction, and so he does. A series of very of, of increasingly horrifying things to accomplish this goal that he believes will save the world from itself, and we follow his train of thought through it. And at each step, he's doing it for those reasons which paved the road to hell. In metaphor, he he's trying to make things better in the long run, and he yeah. feels like he's the only one who can see these large problems. In- I could see myself doing that. Yeah, it just sounds so much like my first marriage. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh! Okay. I want to think about uh, uh, big bads in other forms, too. John Gatti, he was a big bad, but physically, you could take him out. You know, I could punch him out myself, probably. John, who is that person? You don't know who John Gatti is? I don't think there's an I in the name. I think it's John Gotti, G-O-T. Oh, John Gotti. You're right. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. It's okay. John Gotti. Yeah, it's a Teflon Don, a Mafia Don. Yeah, if, if you were to physically go one-on-one with him, you probably could beat him up. His power came from his organization. The reason why it was Teflon Don, because he had the good lawyers. He also could bury the bodies, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you look at his goals. He wanted money. He wanted power over people, and he didn't care how, who he had to hurt to get to attain his goal. The thing is, you kind of have to analyze these guys at this sort of a level 
to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it so that you can say what they're doing and why they're doing it so you have that third dimension behind why the villains are pursuing this mm-hmm. particular goal or this particular set of activities. Look at, uh, oh, uh, a popular villain of our time, uh, both in comics and now movies, Magneto. And he had the Brotherhood of Evil, various villains that worked for him. Magneto, he wanted to avoid what would be happening to mutants that happened to the Jews because Magneto was Jewish. He felt like there was going to be a human versus mutant war and he wanted to defend mutants from the aggressive humans. Right. So he ended up doing a lot of stuff. It was a preemptive strike, mutant superiority. He had a noble goal. He was trying to save Homo sapiens superior. Unfortunately, he wanted to kill a lot of humans to do it. And, of course, that put him at odds with Charles Xavier and his lieutenants, which were the X-Men and the New Mutant. Magneto had survived the Holocaust. He was afraid to see that again. So in, from his eyes, he is coming from the most horrific thing that you can imagine – and he doesn't want that to happen to his people. He doesn't want to see that happen again. And he is seeing it. Now, maybe he's skewed and maybe he's fighting it the wrong way. It's kind of hard to argue with that. Well, you have to remember also, Xavier and Magneto were friends. They were the best of friends. You see it in the comic books. You see it in the movies. Charles Xavier and Eric Lyncher talked all the time. They just had a difference in ideology. And if you look in any type of protagonist-antagonist, often the worst enemies were originally the best of friends. Yep. And here's where we're getting into the difference between Magneto and John Gotti. Besides yeah. besides the fact that one was real and one wasn't. Right. John Gotti didn't have any aims that we would tend to describe as noble. It, it's kind of an alien head to a fully functional human being to say, give me your money or I'm going to punch you in the face. And somebody who lives by that as a way of framing his whole life in Fringeworthy, you're not just dealing with that level of evil. You're also dealing with aliens, and you're dealing with creatures who are so alien to a human mindset that you you couldn't understand them out of the box. I mean, yeah. what if you, you ran across something that was doing something horrible for reasons not that it thought was noble or not just for greed, but that you couldn't understand? I'm going to set all the concrete on this in this city on fire because I need orange socks. No, here, have some orange socks. I'm sorry, those are not my orange socks. Those kind of things are more of a force of nature because the characters and the players can't really relate to it. It's just a bad thing that insists on happening. It has all the character of an earthquake or a tsunami. You know, it's bad, but it doesn't care. And you can't relate to it. You can't talk to it. You just have to try to get out of the way. Yeah, a big bad is not something like Godzilla. I mean, a big bad, from what I see, usually has some motivation other than total destruction on a rampant, chaotic scale. Big bads usually have plans in some form or another. John Gotti's plan was to basically control a, a, a large section of, of organized crime within, his, within New York large, City. To get large piles of money. Yeah. Well, um, that too. But no, but I think it was more about, about the organization. and Because they were talking mafia. So there's a lot of mafia loyalties, a lot of mafia respect going on there. And a lot of this tradition. Don't romanticize John Gotti into like, I'm not into like Don Corleone from The I, Godfather. He was pretending himself to be Don Corleone, 
but he really wasn't that smart. <laughs> he wasn't that organized. A term that John is looking for as far as the honor and all that is omerta. Omerta? Omerta yeah. is the mafioso code of honor. You do certain things a certain way. You respect, you know, certain people. Trav, yes. Yes. not supposed to talk about omerta. Just knock it off. <laughs> it's against omerta to talk about omerta. <laughs> Rule one, you do not f- talk about Fight Club. Rule two, we do not talk about Fight Club. Yes. Um, but you Jay- gotta understand. It was a, it's a something we gotta do, you know? Something <laughs> we gotta do. <laughs> but Jay brought up uh, Fringeworthy. That's a good point. A Master Miller would be a fantastic big bad. Here's the thing. He would be a fantastic big bad if he was somebody the players could talk to. And I should talk. I was just recently in a game where our characters were in a position, had a large, scary Melor pinned and helpless, but sound could pass both ways. My character just said, you know, shoot him, shoot him now. Don't wait till you get him home. You know, it's Melor's season. A master Melor, the whole point of him being a master is that he was an old Melor before he was converted. They have personas that they have already absorbed. Therefore, they have the personas of thinking rational creatures. They just have this overriding evil due to their change. Therefore, you can interact with them other than just be, now, a least or a low mellor, not exactly the most scintillating conversationalist. The whole thing is, is a master mellor could be sitting there. He could be the most charming SOB in the multiverse. Meanwhile, deep down in his brain, he wants to eat your face. But he could sit there and offer you a cup of wine and talk to you and be the most charming person you'll ever meet. Delayed villain gratification. In the later campaign, you run across a Master Miller. But he's in fringeworthy form. You don't realize it. Joins your group. Wherever you go to a world, things happen. You'd have to play that really carefully. Because eventually, if the players ever quigged that you had an NPC in their party systematically backshooting them, unless you let left real broad breadcrumbs you know and here's the thing sometimes the players without necessarily being aware of it they attach your face to your villain and they attach your face to your npcs and if you do an active betrayal like that it's a good story but you might wind up having players who are irritated with you for a long time unable to talk about why because it's happening on a subconscious level they they're blaming you for this stuff not bad-mouthing players that do that, but that is a player that really needs to separate between game and reality. I've been game mastering for over and playing for 30 years now, and I've done that. I mean, I've gotten nasty at my game master for doing it, and I try to make the players, I try to put in enough personality where they know it's not me. I try to make my my big bads as far away from me as possible, so I have that disconnect. I try to keep my plots relatively simple these days. What I try to do is I try to keep my plots a a little more simple. I try to really do basically Fisher-Price plots at this point because (laughs) I've had situations where halfway through the game, half the players forgot what we were trying to do. And at least once I had the characters hired as a tiger team. A tiger team is a group that, that tries to break into their client's facility in order to test their client's security. And then they report back to the client, acting as opposition for your security, here's the weaknesses we saw, here's some things we were able to do to exploit your weaknesses. And with that report, you know their client can rebuild his defenses to be even better. 
like the series on uh, cable, I forget what station, it takes a thief. They basically break into your house or your business and tell you, uh-huh. okay, this is how, how you screwed it. up I got in. And so I had the PCs hired as a Tiger team, and they were told, okay, go in there, and you're looking for the flag. Okay, They had a, they had a data file called the flag. It, the PCs' job was to enter this building and recover the flag. Okay, Halfway through the game, uh, my wife was yelling at me that her character didn't want to break the law anymore. She mm-hmm. had forgotten that this was a security test. This was a Star Wars game, so all the weapons were set on stun. They had forgotten these subtle details to this game and why they were there. And I wound up getting yelled at because, uh, because in the middle of it, they weren't finding what they needed to do, and I wasn't leaving a broad enough trail of breadcrumbs. Now, uh, granted, my players were a quirky bunch. We had to kind of learn tolerance for each other. We had to kind of work around some personal issues inside our gaming group. And I think that's, that's actually sort of healthy. I think that's good for you know learning how to deal with the actual human beings. But, you know, maybe I'm just repeating some one-off damage as though it's some sort of wisdom. I, yeah. I try to keep it simple so that, you know, it's easier to track over the long term. My 10-year-old nephew is in my fringeworthy game. You talk about Fisher-Price plots. I got to sit there and try to have plots that are, are good enough to handle intellects like Eric the Enabler. And if you've heard the questions that that man has given me, i got to make sure that he doesn't get bored. Meanwhile, I have to have a plot that also has elements that keep a 10-year-old boy with ADHD interested, that he's not bouncing up and down on my couch. So your big bad, you got to have it where he has labyrinthine enough plots that will appeal to the elder gamers, yet to a younger gamer... You have to let this guy know, and because Jericho plays video games, my nephew Jericho, he plays video games, he knows, okay, this guy's like Bowser. This is the guy we have to beat, problem is we get through all the the little mushroom people in order to get to him. Meanwhile, on Craigslist, do you crave excitement? Do you need a job? Mook Synonymous wants you. (laughs) But what I was getting at before we had the little side trip was, you had you had the master Miller. He, he, he but eventually his this character disappears. The master Miller is still with the team because you've now gone off to the side with one of the players, and asked him to play the master Miller. Wow! In Fringe, really, what other type of big bads would we have other than ones that are world specific? Fringe using races. Other fringe parties, non-United Nations fringe the, parties who are out for their own deal. Exactly. Fringe pirate king. That's what I used the the early campaign segment of my campaign. The local fringe pirate organization that was marauding around the, uh, the, the nearby portals and such, they had to fight them and take them down. And that was the big bad for the early campaign. We, you do got to worry about other races because eventually you, you get into not big bad, you get into warfare, which is different. So you got to watch out when you're saying the big bad because, well, Hitler was a big bad, but there was no way you're ever going to get anywhere near him. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> the thing is, though, Hitler makes a good big bad because he puts a face while 8 million German guys with rifles try to march down on you. Right. You got your mooks, and then you got your big bad. Well, he's only a good big bad if you can ultimately bring him down. Yeah, that's exactly. Why, that's why Galactus makes a really bad big bad, because you're not going to get to him. Let's face it. You can't no. even get to Silver Surfer. I had two cases where my character was actually co-opted by a force of evil, and the GM took me aside and asked me to play an 
to play my character as evil. And uh, while it's fun in some ways, because you really get to pull out the stops and do whatever you can think of, mm-hmm. it got kind of depressing because I wiped out several of my friends' characters. That wasn't fun for me. If that had been going on for a while, it wouldn't have been fun for the other players. I mean, in both cases, I had to actually sabotage the evil player character I had to avoid a TPK and to allow them to bring, you know, the good version of the character back so that, you know, I didn't have to do a TPK and then have all the players look at me like, what were you doing? When the Miller takes your character over, it's pretty much he's going to use him for what he needs him for and pretty much discard him afterwards. It's almost going to be always, always going to be a one shot. Okay, so we have Master Mullers, we have Fringe Pirate Chieftains or Kings. Are there any other really big bads that are not world-specific? Like, oh, we might have the 30s Mafia world, so we have the Mafioso Don on that world. Why would we want them not to be world-specific? You could set up a world where the world itself has a problem and where the team is sent in to resolve the problem, where that could become a mini-campaign all of its own, Yes. its own big bad for them to defeat. Well, I think we want to talk also about big bads specifically to the overlapping campaign worlds. <laughs> like, Bureau 13, the first big bad that comes to mind for me, having did the D20 project, Matthias Bolt. Yep. Now, and he, wouldn't he make a wonderful big bad? Oh, yes. And I mean, the man just oozes charisma and evil. He's got an entire evil legion around him, which is directly opposed to Bureau 13. And you Mm -hmm. know that there are Bureau agents and players, if you're familiar with the history. This is a man who collects Nazi brains as a hobby. This is a nice man. For all we know, he may be 100 years old, too. Well, right. So that means he's had a long time to plan this stuff. And you know there are Bureau agents. You're going to have some hot, young, punk Bureau agent here, you know, and he's going to get, you know, the fire in his pants that he wants to take down Matthias Bull. He's going to end up being a smear on the wall. He's going to end up having to go through uh, hundreds, if not thousands of minions to even think of getting a Matthias Bull. By that I time, he'll be an experienced character or dead. I think that if a new, hot, young Bureau 13 agent says, I'm going to take down Matthias Bolt, the GM has an option of saying, no, that's too big for you. How about let's do a couple of other things first? Or saying... Okay, that's our campaign, and start designing the beginning, middle, and end around a long-term campaign of confrontation against Matthias Bolt. I think that would be a viable campaign, but to say, oh no, no piddly little character that you could make up could ever take down Matthias Bolt, that neuters the character. That takes away the power fantasy of having a character who can do stuff like that. This falls prey to what I call, why didn't Gandalf use the eagles? question for Lord of the Rings. Okay, I'm a low-level you know, agent, but I've read the book, so I know one important little fact. All I need to do is get into Matthias Bolt's ha- house, then call J.P. Withers. When the smoking ruins of the house is uh, clear, as I may be still alive. You can hope, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, see, and see, there's the thing. Get to Matthias Bolt's house. Go ahead and do that. Yeah. Do That's it when true. Matthias Bolt is there. Because if you just blow up his house, all you've done is let him know that somebody's irritated at it. He knows that already. And suddenly you're on the wrong end of a mix of punk and the Illuminati. It's just not going to go your way. You also have to realize Matthias Bolt to the public is a philanthropist. He's a nice guy. He has public opinion on his side. So being he is the ultimate big bad. He is a big bad that 
publicly nobody will touch. Because why would you harm Matthias Bolt? He gives to children's organizations and he does photo ops. He's Warren Buffett with a widow's peak. Right, exactly. If you're going to throw your bureau agents against that, if you're going to just be the type of jerk GM that says, okay, fine, you want, and you plot out, I mean, even if you go directly Big Bad, if you just, if your players decide if you're going to do this just to satisfy this guy or to show the player up, just to show how much of, of a fool's quest this is, and you plot out Matthias Bolt's mansion, they're going to deserve what they get because this guy yeah. is the Big Bad. As he's sitting there smoking a Cuban cigar, kicking back in his Corinthian leather chair, he's watching as, and I'm going to borrow from this here, and, and Bruce and John will know exactly what I'm referring to, you're going to have to go through his topiary garden where the topiaries are live, and you have to sneak through his mansion and go through various traps, and as Bruce and John know what I speak here when I'm referring to this. You're going to go through hell in a handbasket to get to this guy, and it's not going to be fun. If you survive, then the game master probably did something wrong. He's that much of a big bad. And, it's, of course, when you stand there in front of, you, in front of him, you're like, I'm going to take you down. I'm going to call J.P. Withers. Boop, 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 boop. I have no bars. <laughs> 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 or you get the answering machine. Oh. I don't know what you mean. All the bars around here belong to me. Push the button, wham, all the doors slam shut. Uh-oh. Matthias Bolt is like the object of a quest. You have to build up and you have to do a number of unlikely and violent things and you have to train and, and get better at better at doing what it is PCs do before you have a shot at going after and taking down Matthias Bolt. And while you're doing that, Matthias Bolt is going to be sending appropriately challenging things to, to try to take you down. Because you're not really worth his notice, but he also doesn't want to let you get to the point where you might break something. Right, so he's exactly. going to say, you, yeah. you, Mook, go take care of those piddly little, oh, he got that one. You, Mook plus one, <laughs> go take that one down. You plus one, I like that, Jay. <laughs> okay, let me go get my book of demon summoning and call perfect demon and deal with them. You, there we go. <laughs> demon plus two, I have a job for you. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are ways you can play with this. You could there are ways you could have Matthias Bolt show up at Aunt May's house and woo her, you know. <laughs> I mean <laughs> They actually did that with Spider Man and Doc Ock. Just threw up in my soul at that thought. Thanks a lot. <laughs> but you know, have Matthias Bolt actually show up and start messing with their families and their backstories. Just because he's having that kind of fun watching the expression on there. One of the adventures that was put out in one of the books included a supernatural convention, and one of the speakers was Matthias Bolt. I don't know if I'd want to listen to him without appropriate protection. Yeah. You know, give me give me a couple of wards against mind control. Give me you know some filtering earplugs against demonic suggestions. And then I'll listen to his torturing Bureau 13 agents for fun and profit. You never know. You could learn something. That'd be a panel that I would owe avoid like the plague. I think we'd all count as wannabes. I think we'd be the party entertainment. Yeah. Okay. What other, I'm, I'm trying to think what other big bads there are in Bureau 13. Gosh darn. You can take any of the standard enemies and turn them into a big bad if you want to. Yeah. Gosh darn. Sun Yun Yen. I ran a big bad campaign. The campaign I called The Savior. This started off with everybody 
having a great time, enjoying the new year. They're all in Times Square, and suddenly there's a crack of thunder, a flash of light, and there's this glowing figure hanging over Times Square. Who looks down and says, well, you were expecting me, weren't you? (laughs) And proceeds on a world domination plan. Now, he was very nice about it. He told everybody up front. He says, look, your world is, is terrible. I'm going to have to do something about that. He made a lot of ultimatums here and there. They were small, but he slowly started working his way through things. He proved that he couldn't be bombed to death. He said, "Okay, throw your nukes at me. They tried. It didn't work. At the same time, he also went over and showed that he could heal people just by touching them. The Bureau was like, well, should we get rid of this guy? I mean, he's doing good things. He really makes us worried. And then he killed Matthias Bolt. And they're like, oh, man, we really wanted that guy gone. (laughs) (laughs) Is he a good guy or a bad guy? The Bureau literally spent a couple of years paralyzed in indecision because they couldn't figure out whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. Until finally, after he had established this large organization of people working for him and stuff, he said, okay, it's time for me to uh, assign lieutenants to my organization, and they were the Wind Willow Coven families. Oh. Um. And that's when the Bureau said, okay, fine, now we know he's a bad guy. We've got to get rid of him. How are we going to get rid of him? Wow, you, you throw that as... <laughs> The bad guy. You're a heck of a guy, Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) It's time for a holy hand grenade of Antioch. Right. There you go. That's it, brother. (laughs) He was approachable. I mean, there had to be a reason for you to talk to him. I mean, it wasn't like you could just walk up with him off the street like you couldn't walk up to the head of a corporation off the street. He was a busy, busy man. Right, exactly. Yeah, taking over planets, destroying various continents. Busy, busy, busy. Have to fill in the time, yes. He did hold these healing services on a regular basis where he would heal people of any disease they had to show that positive side of himself. That was how they were finally able to approach him. He's invulnerable. He's got all kinds of magical protections on him. He's psionically encased. There's no way for us to touch him. And then they said, why is that? And then that's when they said, because he's had all this time to build up all this stuff. They were able to get enough information to realize he'd come from the future. He was like 30 centuries in the future, coming back through time with this huge instrumentality to be able to be a godlike person. But he wasn't totally immune to everything. He was totally immune to everything now. Ah. They had to figure out a way of traveling back in time to the moment he appeared and take him out in that moment before he really got his wits about him and was able to really erect his defenses. Ah. They had to figure out how to time travel. We have this experimental time travel gear, but the only way to power it is like to plug it into the sun. And we don't have any kind of power source like that. And they're like, wait a second, we know somebody who does the big bad. They had to steal his technology in order to defeat him. They went to one of his healing services for the sole purpose of him touching them and therefore transferring power to their device so they could time travel. And as soon as he realizes he did it, he just stands there and goes, oh, crap. (laughs) They all vanished. Yeah, it was like, oh, but see, now we're going into the past, and it's too late because they're now gone. 
there was more to it, much more to it. It was was a campaign. But the point was that this was a guy that you could really hate at the same time. You had to question a long time whether he was a good person or a bad person. At the same time, I was running them through regular adventures where they were doing other stuff. So slowly they were able to piece together this information from the Bureau and from their own researches until they finally said, okay, we can make a decision about this guy. Are we going to go against him or not as an organization? That sounds pretty cool. We started it on January the 1st. <laughs> that was the day he appeared, and it was pretty much December by the time we finished that campaign. Oh, okay. The following year. All right. I was trying to remember what game we were about to go to, and they brought, oh, Incursion. Well, you got the Kastapnor in, in the Light Force. The big bad of the Kastapnor Consortium himself is, and let, let me try to get the name here, Ashen Po Apar, the magistrate of the consortium, the guy who is actually controlling the cloned heir that spends all of his time drooling. Ashen Po Apar is the power behind the throne. He is the big bad. He is the one that ultimately holds the keys that starts all the Enshani ships that the Constantor Light Force has. He right there to me screams the big bad of incursion. Without a doubt. I mean, you can have your slaver lords. You can have people, you know, like Maybe controlling the solar system. I'm sorry. Ashen Poapar, which, by the way, to me, looks like I look at the picture and I see Bono from U2. But <laughs> he it's exactly, I showed it to, to people that I, I saw the book. I go, who does he look like? And they go, oh, my God, it looks like Bono. Uh, yeah, Ashen Poapar to me is the big bad of incursion. Just because. You would tend to set up a game where it was leading slowly but surely to a confrontation with this guy. The Constantor Consortium is a regressing society. If you read the fluff text in Incursion, they even said, oh yeah, we worked uh, 20-hour weeks and we're working a 40-hour week now. We're getting the same pay that my grandfather did for 20 hours. That's a regressing society. Mm -hmm. And so this guy is basically whittling away his own society, amassing power for himself, hiding behind an idiot who just happens to be the genetic heir to the throne of the Constantor Consortium. This guy don't even have a genetic claim, but he's the one pulling the strings. And he's got thousands of troops, and Shani and non-Enshani starships, unlimited resources from like, you know, what, 490 worlds, I think it is, that qualify, and he's got a plan to amass more power, including the ship that your characters are in. And so his motivation is simply... I'm getting more power for me. What does that fix for him? What need does that fill for him? What, what about the world does that change for him in order to make him feel in such a way that he's willing to put in that kind of work and that kind of effort? Return to the glory of ancient Kostopnor. He actually thinks he's doing the people a favor. He says in the text, he says, seriously, the people don't know what's good for them, and they must be taught that my word is law. He says, I do this benevolent work for the people of all the empire. He thinks he's a good guy. He thinks that if he's just ruthless enough and vile enough that he can make things go back the way they were and everybody would be happy. Right. Yeah. Upon pain of death. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Floggings will continue until the morale improves. And, you know, that's perfectly understandable. And, you know, at the heart of that, if if you want to plumb that depth, there may be. You know, when he was a small child, he was raised on stories of the glory of the old empire and the glory of the old Constantinople Confederacy and 
and how great that was and what a terrible tragedy it is that they let things go to he- go to heck. He's that classic villain that you know we talked about before. He's he's Anakin Skywalker all over again. The ends justify the means, and once he's in control and he can control everybody and everything, things will be better. People will be happier. You'll see. Yeah, you'll see. You'll see. Things would be a lot better if it was a dictatorship and I was the dictator. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, of course. That was George W. Bush. <laughs> Gore Vidal said, there is no problem in the world that could not be solved if people would simply do as I say. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. All right, I started using it on my show. Anyways, <laughs> you have other opportunities and incursion for big bads. You have yeah. slave kings because you start out as slaves. You may decide as a GM, okay, I'm not going to do the whole Stomner thing. But these people took me from my home. These people were willing to treat me as if I was nothing more than a piece of meat. I want to take them down. They're going to know what it's like to have my foot in their rear. Therefore, I'm going to climb the hierarchy until I take the guy responsible for creating the organization that took me from my home. And I'm going to use their ship against them. Unfortunately, in this situation, the the guy responsible may actually be entire alien, you know, mini empire. Call them the New Romans, only they got six arms and four eyes, but still... And slavery is part of the way of life. That's fine, but then that's in the course of the campaign, you do things like forge alliances. You find an alien empire that either has a beef against it, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or you just happen to find somebody who's like, oh, you humans are quaint. Yeah, Yeah. we'll, we'll help you out. Sure, you look like you are trying to make your way here. Oh, fighting them? Eh, yeah, we, okay, yeah, we'll help you. It's cute. Oh, aren't you adorable? But still, if you're going to go up against the slaver lords, that's the, the PC's job to find people to help you. Because after a while, they're going to look and going, this is beyond our pay grade. We just, no. We have one ship, they have ten. We need to get help. Fighting is actually the worst thing you can do because you're just proving yourself no better than they are. you got to go old Gandhi on them. I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. That's using that's using the idea that the whole point of the thing is to change is, people's opinions. Is to rescue the Constantinor from being the Constantinor. Yeah. And some people might just say screw them and move on to their next thing, which is trying to find their way home. What kind of obstacles would there be? In, would there be a big bad who might have an opinion about whether or not a random batch of Earth people with a uh, wonderful UFO? should be allowed to go back to their primitive dirt baller. Speaking of space, FTL 2448, let's try that. I would say the Hagu. Yeah, the Hagu. Bless you. There's an evil master villain race named after a supermarket (laughs) spaghetti sauce. No, no, no. It's a a traditional Scottish dish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Bruce, the type that would be canned. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of aliens and cans, there's actually a very good big bad, uh, one of the races that's actually like a giant cockroach inside of a power armor crystalline shell. The sand roll. Yeah, Yeah. those guys are very enigmatic, uh, and they don't really talk about what they're there for. Now, people have a tendency to put them to doing jobs like you know heavy lifting and things like that, which gets them into really good positions for them to do a lot of stuff. And there's no reason to think that because they're so alien, that, as you talked before, they wouldn't have an entirely different motivation for them to make a grab for power. 
trying to figure out how things work so they can take it for themselves. I like the Hagu because they fall into the term of businessman. They were looking more for new places to trade, but they but they didn't believe in free trade. They believe in well directed trade. Yeah, well, directed at gunpoint. If you are familiar with FTL twenty forty, and and I consider John our resident expert in that game, the Hagu had a wonderful race of shock troops called the Zanki. Big, thick, white, muscular, hairless, not all that bright, but carry really big guns. We Zanki, we kill. Yes. Yeah, pretty much that's it. And they were the shock troops of the Hagu. The Hagu were the brains of the operation. Just the Zanki came in and just stomped through whatever the, the Hagu basically pointed them and said, kill that man, won't you? And they just walk like, yes, kill that man, won't you? You know, so, so, but the Hagu, yeah, let's see. I'm trying to recall if there's really any other big bads in FTL 2448 that come to mind. They don't really have any evil force like that. They just have a whole bunch of different races. It's one of those cases where you'd say, well, if I take this race and I make them into a big bad, what would be their motivation? Right. If I was to pick one, and though I said I, I did like them, the one I would pick would be the Krelvin, because this is a race that has bioengineered themselves into a hood ornament. Yeah. These guys are so advanced that their science is like magic. And they love practical jokes. Oh, no. I wanted to play them like the Joker, where they were homicidal. Where the joke, is, where the joke is kind of aggressive postmodernism. All this stuff you think about right and wrong is a joke. Ha ha ha! I'm going, I'm going to hurt you and kill you until you figure it out. They have some like idea of like I want to play pinball with a couple of sons. Oh, you know, your, your planets have a problem with that? Well, I'm sorry, uh, you're just too unevolved to be able to get out of the way. Too bad. The crow would be the type of person that would sit there, I know I want to bioengineer into something better. Wait a minute, why am I in the form of a horse with um, butterfly wings and I have a tongue like an anteater? Yeah. Well, you said a better form. You didn't say better by whose standards. That's the most I ever saw the crowman do. I didn't see them sit there wanting to play pinball with stars. <laughs> the few Krelvin you meet are the ones who are a little bit... Yeah. The rest live on Krelvin. They're like semi-ascended. They're not quite there yet. They haven't quite figured out how to go that last step and become pure thought. But they're working on it. The Krelvin you meet are the ones who like to go out there and, you know, interface with yep. folks. And you think a loose cannon like that can't be a big bad? Sure. But, yeah, there's, there's good Kelvin and there's other Kelvin. <laughs> <laughs> Kelvin think themselves beyond such concepts of good and evil. That would be like the equivalent of Hannibal Lecter being super sane, where he's beyond the concepts of what we would consider sanity. Let's see, what other game? If I was to do a big bad in Hardware Hinterland, it would either have to be somebody mm -hmm. coming from the other side of the helium layer. Oh, yeah. Or it would have to be some aberrant splinter group, uh, restaurants that were trying to destroy instead of build. Eh, I'd be thinking the king, the guy who's got his hand on all the lightning crystals. King and the name escapes. Oh, Anson? King. Yeah, King Anson. I figured he'd be a big bad because nobody likes him. He has his hand in the society of the environs because, hey, I have all the lightning crystals. In order for them to have trade... They have to come to me, and I can be as big a jerk as I want to. I can take my ball and go home. 
Right. But he doesn't. He has this whole kind of uh, uh, air marshal, air knight nobility going. Yeah. So he, he actually wants people to think uh, well of him. Yeah. And he's not. The guy is a raging, well, uh, I'll leave the listeners to fill in that blank because we are trying to be pod safe. But yeah, he's basically a raging one. So he's going to sit there and have that mentality of, you know, the middle finger to people he don't like. And he's probably going to use some pretty nasty means to get rid of people he doesn't like. Yeah. They're going to end up being squid food. Yeah. And, and, and where do the air pirates come from? For, for all we know, we could be looking at it. Let's call it the El Qaddafi syndrome where, yes, I'm a great guy. I have my air knights. Also, we have a little base here for the air pirates to operate off because yeah. they, they bring meat stuff. Yeah. yeah, the air pirates could be a good big bad. Yeah. Then you find out they're being financed by somebody. They could either be the big bad, depending on the campaign you're running, or, yes, we beat them, and wait a minute, what do you mean we have this paper trail or whatever? They're being financed by someone else? Son of a, you know, and so, yeah, you could sit there and have the the air pirates as you think that you finally beat them, and then you find out yet another layer. Again, then you can come up with big bads, depending on the scale of your campaign. Let's say you're only going to maybe three or four environs. There might be a particular environment where there's one guy that runs the entire environment. It could be the leader. It could be a monster. It could be um, somebody from a non-environment-based person that has taken over the whatever. And so it just depends on your scale of campaign what type of big bad would be for Hardwired Hinterland. Right, because you can have an entire campaign that only takes place on Noram. The daring, dashing Don Carnage. He doesn't have a base assembled several airships and with lightning crystals he can stay aloft as long as he has power but it is a flying air base well do we want to stop and continue this next week once you guys review your own audio files on this and think about is there's anything else that we haven't covered because i really think that we really haven't covered this as well as we could have to me the big bad is the cap of your campaign if they're going to end their campaign, if they're not going to be like me that runs campaigns for five, ten years, they're going to want to end the campaign with something and then move on to something else. I uh, ended the early campaign with the big battle against the fringe pirates. I'm on the middle campaign now. I'm working to some kind of a big confrontation with the Meller. They've been fighting Meller. They've been running into them. The, the Meller are good friends of, of the president of the United States, and he thinks they're the greatest things since sliced cheese. He is a meller himself, or he doesn't understand what they're really like. And then once I finish that, then I'm going to move on to the late campaign and have these guys really strut their stuff with some seriously advanced gear and some more world-shattering type adventures. Which means I'm going to have to have a seriously big, big bad for the end one. Right, and we should probably talk about the evolution of the big bad and like how you're when you use when you use the big bad, you know, um, working your story arc. So your you know yeah. arc has its has its beginning, its middle, and its end, and and how to work the big bad into those three roles. Like, what what is he doing to establish mm-hmm. himself as the big bad with the party right. in those roles? Yeah, you know, what I mean, like he has to start out somewhere. Like, does he does he start out as the big bad against your party, or does he start as one of your friends? That kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. This is Jay. 
Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. license 3.0 no commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed the tri-tech podcast is wholly owned by tri-tech games visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on facebook Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.